Good? Awesome. It's great to be with you. Great to see y'all. See all your smiling faces. Choir, thank you so much for getting my heart rate up. I guess the Lord knew I needed that. I don't know. But it's great to be with you. Great to see you. Maros, thanks for being here with us. With us. Um, I, I was impressed by the whoops that you got with A&M, with all the Aggies in the room and the Bear, Kylie, Baylor Bears, y'all, need to, y'all, y'all got a little work to do. You got a little work to do. Yep. Good to be with you today. You're going ahead and open up your Bible. Turn with, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to close out the second chapter of Colossians today. You know, um, last week, Dr. Vassar did a great job preaching for me. I'm very grateful for him, but I'm kind of ungrateful for the quiz that he gave us. Y'all remember that quiz? He gave a self-righteous quiz, and it went something like this. You may be self-righteous if, and then he gave us some different options. And about the third one in, I was kind of frustrated. I was done. I was like, okay, I don't need you to tell me how, fr- how self-righteous I am. I'm, I'm pretty great. So today we're going to kind of build off of that ideology, the idea of self-righteousness and all of those things. But it got me thinking last week, I thought, you know, where does self-righteousness, where does it come from? You ever thought about that? Where does self-righteousness come from? And, and it struck me, I thought, you know, it's overnight. Right? It's not just one of those things where it just happens. Self-righteousness is something that grows up and among us as we get older and all those different things. But I was thinking about it. I said, self-righteousness doesn't just appear overnight, but it comes from building our lives on rules and regulations to the degree that we believe that we have perfected those rules. And not only have we perfected them, but because we have perfected them, then we expect everybody else around us to live up to those expectations and perfections as well. Now, this is what the Bible calls, ready for it? Legalism. Say it with me. Legalism. Self-righteousness is a form of legalism. As a matter of fact, I think it's the overflow of legalism. So to prevent any confusion, here's what I want to do. I want to define what we mean by legalism so that we make sure that we're all on the same page. So legalism is the dependence upon moral laws or standards So legalism is the dependence upon moral laws or standards to be what saves us or sustains our relationship with God. So again, legalism is the dependence upon moral laws or standards to be what saves us or sustains our relationship with God. Now here's the overflow. Here's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness then is the belief that I am living up to those laws and standards and expecting everyone else to do the same. And when they don't do that, what ends up happening is we exercise judgment over them when they fail to meet those particular standards that we are so so good at. Now, what we're going to do this morning, and I think this is really, really important, I want you to hear this, is Paul is going to condemn this. In our text that we're going to read today, Paul is going to condemn any form of self-righteousness, any form of legalism, he's going to condemn it. He's going to condemn it. He's going to, going, to, going, to, he's going to be very, very matter of fact about it. And so I want us, as we're sitting under the word of the Lord, I want us to hear it. And I want, to hear, I want us to hear it with fresh ears. Um, and here's the reason why. The church has been guilty of this for decades. As a matter of fact, there are many folks who have walked away from the church because of 
self-righteousness and legalism. And so what we're going to do is we're going to put it, in it, it, put it in its place as Paul condemns this, not only for the Colossian church, but also for us as well. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that our salvation is built on nothing new. In fact, I want, you to re- I want you to grapple with this idea as we're talking about a captive life, you know, we're either living a captive life to the world or we're living a captive life to Christ. I want you to grapple with the idea a captive life is nothing new. In fact, it's built on a person who lived 2,000 years ago. His name is Jesus. That means that it's not about our performance. It's not about our rules or regulations that we build for ourselves and for others. It's solely about Jesus who gave his life for us 2,000 years ago so that we might begin a relationship with God. And so I want you to see that our maturity in the faith, that rules and regulations are not going to be what's going to get us there. Placing rules and regulations on other people is not going to be what gets us there. It's solely going to be about a relationship with Jesus, and that's it. That's it. And so there's this thing in us that's going to want to push against that truth, that's going to want to build regulations and rules and all these things for our lives. But at the end of the day, what Paul is saying here, his main argument for you and for me is that our relationship with Christ that is how we earn, that's how we get our salvation, that's how we sustain it, and that's it. Anything over that is an overflow of that intimate relationship that we have in Christ. Are you with me? Are we clear? I prayed for, I want you to have clarity this morning. So I prayed for that over and over and over again this morning, that you would have clarity, that there is no way to earn our salvation. It is purely by the grace of God in Jesus. Okay, let's read what Paul has to say. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. This is the word of the Lord. If you're willing to enable, I'd ask you to stand and honor the reading of God's word. Okay, this is Paul writing. He says, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, if that's true of you, that's what Paul says, that you've died with Christ, been raised to newness of life. If that's true of you, he says, then why? Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Paul says, these have indeed an appearance. You might want to circle that word. These have, an indeed, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism and severity to the body. But hear this, they are of no value in stopping the flesh. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. <clears throat> so you, you ever had that moment where maybe you're at work, uh, maybe you're at home, and man, you are exhausted, you're frustrated. Maybe there's a person that you're just, they're just wearing you out. Maybe it's a kid at home, a grandkid at home, and they're just not obeying. And you have this moment where what, what we called in my home growing up was a come to Jesus moment. Y'all know those? Those come to Jesus meetings? Well, quite literally, that's what Paul's having in this particular chunk of scripture here. He's having a come to Jesus meeting. That's the tone, like he's frustrated, right? That's why he says, hey, if this is true of you, then why in the world are we still having this conversation? Why are we doing this over and over and over and over and over again? That's Paul's thrust. He's just kind of 
frustrated. It's not angry. It's just enough is enough. We got to figure this out. And then oddly enough, in verse 20, Paul begins not with the point, but he begins with a question. He says, if you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, then why in the world are you still alive in the world doing or submitting to these regulations and these rules and all this kind of stuff? And ironically, by asking this question, what Paul is doing is he is calling out legalism and self-righteousness and he's putting it in its place. He's putting it in its place. He's saying that when we give our lives to Christ, we are burying not only our sin, hear this, we're burying not only our sin in the grave, but we're also burying our performance right along with it. When our sin is buried into the grave, so too is our performance, our desire to perform for God to have his favor in order to earn a relationship or to sustain a relationship. In the grave, both our sin and our performance die in the grave of Jesus. He says, whenever we give our lives over to Christ, We are burying our sin and our performance into the grave. And as Jesus walks out of an empty grave, we walk out with him in newness of life. Never to return back to the grave. But hear me, because this is important. Yet time and time and time and time again, we return back to that grave. We return back to the grave where we put, yet again, our performance on or we sit and we wallow in our sin and our shame. And what Paul is saying here is if you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why in the world would you return back to the grave in which Christ found you? Why would you do that? It didn't make any sense. He's helping us see that all of our performance that leads to legalism and self-righteousness belong buried in the grave. But Paul, I think, I think, you know, as I was thinking about this all week, because golly, I mean, I'm, I'm a legalist. I like rules. I like to follow rules, and I like everybody else to follow the rules. And so all week as I'm thinking about this and I'm discerning my own heart and my own self-righteousness, I mean, I'm just like, okay, Lord, show me this in my life so that I can repent and I can experience freedom quite frankly, for myself and the, own, the expectations I place on myself and the expectations I place on everybody else, free me from these things so that I can walk in freedom and joy and I won't be bound up and live as though I'm living in the grave. I want to live on the other side of the tomb. I want to live on the other side of the grave. I don't want to return back to the grave in which he found me. And what I think Paul is helping us see here is that when we become a Christian, we're not believing in our performance to these rules or regulations to save us but that would be worldly. That's his argument. But we are trusting Christ to be our salvation and him alone to be our salvation. That means that I can't be my own salvation. I can't do that. You can't do that. You you can't save yourself. And so what we bring to the table, what all of us bring to the table, like if you've placed your faith and your trust in Christ, there's a couple of things that, that we've all agreed on. Okay? There's a couple of things that we've all agreed on, and then there's a, a couple of things that we have to trust in. Okay? So there's a couple of things to agree on. Here's the first one. The first thing that you and I, we all have to agree on is, number one, is that God is perfect. God is absolutely perfect. And because everything originated with him, he owns all that he creates. That's important for you to hear. Because God created everything, right? Everything that he creates, he owns. That means that he, he, he's the, 
the only one who can set a standard. He's the only one who can set rules. He's the only one who can do that. Every other rule that we have comes from that originating rule, okay? So God created everything. He owns that which he creates. He creates a standard. And hear this. This is really important. His standard is perfection. His standard for your life, his standard for my life, his standard for all of us, his standard for his people, for people that he created, which we are all created in his image, And because we are all created in his image, he sets the standard, and his standard is absolute and total perfection. Now, understand the do's and the don'ts that we have come up with in Christianity do not come close to comparing with God's standard of perfection. It is complete and total perfection. Head, heart, hands, perfection. All of it. Total perfection. So we're agreeing that God is perfect that he alone has the power to set the rules and that those rules are completely and totally perfect. The second thing that you and I are agreeing on is that we have failed to meet that standard. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how gifted we might be, no matter what your mom or your grandmother said of you when you were little, not even on your best day, not even on your best day can you meet that standard. It doesn't matter the clothes that you wear, the way you present yourself on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or in the business office or at home. God sees right through it all. And we have all failed to meet his perfect standard. On our best day, we fail to meet God's perfect standard because it's impossible. It's impossible to, it's impossible to live up to. And, 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 and if you're hearing this rightly, you ought to feel the weight, of your, the weight of that on your shoulders. Like there ought to be a weight that's sitting on your chest and on your shoulders this morning as you're hearing that, that, that no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter how you present yourself, you can never live up to that standard. So that's, that's what we're agreeing to. Now, because we can't live up to that standard, Something outside of us is going to have to live up to that standard on our behalf in order that we might be made new, that we might be able to have a relationship with God. Something outside of us has to meet that standard. And so that's the point of Jesus, right? God has this standard. We can't live up to that standard no matter what we do. Something has to bridge the gap. So God sends Jesus to this earth to live a perfect life. He lived perfectly up to God's perfect standard. He died to take on the punishment for our inability to live up to that perfect standard. And then he was buried. And then on the third day, he was raised to walk in newness of life. That for all who would put their faith and trust in him would be buried with him in his death and would be raised to walk in newness of life. Now there's an important word that you need to understand this morning. It's the word substitute. Because I think many of us can agree on what I just said. That God sent Jesus to this earth to live a perfect life, to die the death that we deserve, was buried and raised again on the third day. I think we can, we can, we can agree on that. But here's the tension. It cannot just be a theory that we believe or knowledge that we have in our head. It has to be personal. And that's where our self-righteousness and legalism dies. It's recognizing 
that the standards that I have for my life and the standards that I place on other people's lives pale in comparison to God's perfect standard and I could not meet it and yet somebody had to meet it for me. Substitute. Jesus came to this earth not to just be a good teacher, although he was. He came to be a substitute for you and for me. He lived a perfect life that I could never live, a perfect life that you can never live. Perfect, totally perfect. He hung upon a cross where he took on your sin and my shame. He became my substitute on the cross. He bore the cross that I deserved because of my inability to live up to God's perfect standard. And he died the death that I deserved He was my substitute in that grave. This is not a theory. This is not for those people. This is for us. It's for you and for me in the room. And I think what happens is is maybe there was a point in our life where we said, oh, yes. Yes, I trust that. And maybe we walked an aisle and maybe we prayed a prayer and man, praise God for that. But here's what happens, right? We stop trusting it. We walk out of an empty grave with knowledge, knowledge of what Christ has come and what he's done for us. But then all of a sudden that becomes something for them out there, not for us in here. And so we start performing and we start pretending And we start pretending that we're much better than we are and we build this life of rules and and regulations and all of these things that we do and what we don't do and all of those things. And what we're doing and what you don't realize is that we're walking back to our grave and we're expecting all these people that we're judging around us to meet us in the grave. And Jesus says, no. Paul's saying, no. You're missing it. See, the gospel is not a one-time kind of thing. It's an everyday kind of thing. It's an everyday kind of thing where every day I wake up and go, okay, God, I've got to trust you to be my perfection because I can't do it. I've got to trust you to be my perfection. I've got to thank you for dying in my place when I fail to meet God's perfect standard. I've got to thank you for walking out of an empty grave so that I could walk out with you despite the fact that over and 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 over again, I fell and 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 you're failing too and sometimes we forget that we're failing and then we cast this judgment on people who are also failing, not realizing that Jesus is saying, no, listen, I died for them too. And I, gosh, and I died for you. But it can't be a theory. It's got to be personal. He has to be your substitute. He has to be your substitute. I was thinking about how do I, Callie, how do I illustrate this? And man, I, goodness, I started thinking about how many teachers do we have in the room? You got, we got teachers in here. I want you to think about this. Okay, you're a teacher, and for whatever reason, in the fall or the spring, you've got to take a day off work. And so you create this great lesson plan, right? This wonderful lesson plan. You know your kids. You know what they need. You create this lesson plan. Students are fired up because you're gone, and they're going to act a fool. 
So you create this lesson plan. You're excited about this lesson plan. You get your desk ready. You get everything all ready and organized the way that you hope that it's going to go. Everything's going to go great. And then that Monday morning, the substitute walks in and, oh, she's excited. Yes. Oh, it's organized. I've got a game plan. I know exactly what I'm doing. And then all of a sudden you show back up. And the substitute's kind of weirded out by that. Like, why is she here? What's she doing here? And so she approaches the class, she starts teaching the class, and all of a sudden the the classroom teacher is like, well, oh, that's not how I do it. That's not how we do it here. Well, if you knew him, then you would know how how we're supposed to do it. And so the the substitute's going like, well, well, then what do you need me for? If you're here and you can teach the lesson plan, what do you need me for? The same thing is true with Christ. When we accept him and we trust him for our salvation, but then every day we attempt to be the substitute. Rather than allow him to be the one who lived our perfect life, died the perfect death, walked out of an empty grave, we decide that, well, I've got to do it. I've got to perform. All the while, we enter this ever-exhausting, never-ending loop of performance and pretending, trying to live up to these rules and expectations and all of these things that we build for ourselves. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting. It makes, me, it makes us angry, arrogant, frustrated, because we've missed the grace of God. We've missed the grace of God. You know, it, it kind of brings us back to that question, Paul's question. He says, if this is true of you and you've made this personal, this decision personal to make Christ our substitute, meaning it's not a theory, it's not knowledge in your head, but you've truly accepted Christ as your substitute in life, death, and resurrection, Paul says, then why in the world, why in the world would we turn back to our performance? Why would we do that? And I have no answer except for my pride. And I think that's the problem with our self-righteousness and our legalism is at the end of the day that we want to add something to it. We want to control it. We want people to live up to our standard. What does that do? It feeds our pride. You know, I was thinking about this, I actually polled a group of the staff, I got some of the staff members together and I said, hey, what are some of the things and maybe that you've believed over the years or maybe that you've grown up and you were taught, some of these legalistic tendencies. So we kind of talking about this because I was trying to get my head around, okay, what are some ways that we've done this? And here, here's, a, here's a pretty tangible list. Maybe you can relate. Here's some legalistic tendencies that we've made, these rules, these regulations. Don't drink. Don't smoke, don't do drugs, don't have sex, don't dance, don't curse, don't go to movies. Y'all remember that? That was a thing. Don't go to the movies, don't get tattoos, don't, don't, don't go to grocery stores that sell alcohol, don't run in the church, don't have fun in the church. Don't express feelings or emotions in the church. 
Don't miss Sunday. Don't miss church on Sunday night. Y'all remember that one? You're going to lose your salvation if you miss church on Sunday night. Don't wear certain clothes, especially not to church. Goodness gracious. Look like you got it together at church. Don't listen to anything but Christian music. KJV is the only Bible that we can read or preach from. I remember having some conversations about that. We don't do this, we don't do that. This is not what we do at our church. That's not how we've always done it. You know, and I was thinking about these things, right? Like, they're not all bad. They're not all bad. I mean, in many cases, they're born out of a good desire, but all too often, I think what happens is because of our sin, we make a good thing bad. We can take good things and we can make them bad. We end up building these rules on top of rules to the degree that we become so focused on obeying external rules that we miss the inner condition of our hearts. Next thing, we're no, next thing we know, we're, we're doing them to be saved or because if we don't, God's gonna punish us in some way. You ever, you ever felt like that? That God, man, if I, don't, if I don't live up to these things, if I don't make all the right decisions and somehow or another God's gonna give me cancer? I used to think that. I really did. I, I thought, man, if I, if I make the wrong decisions, then man, God's gonna somehow punish me. It's like, the, like God's that little kid up, upstairs and he's got his magnifying glass and he's trying to get the sunlight to scorch me at any moment that I do something wrong. Right? Like we build these rules and these regulations and we think that, gosh, if I don't do that, then, then maybe my salvation is, is up in the air. Maybe I was never saved. I mean, how many times have I recommitted my life? Every church camp. You know, and it's all about those rules and regulations. Gosh, Lord, I've failed you again. How many times have we prayed, God, forgive us where we fail you? I was thinking about that. That's not a right prayer. Because it dismisses the fact that because of our failure, Christ came to this earth and he gave, us, gave his life for our failure so that we wouldn't look back at the failure, but rather we would look to him. And so then it begins, Lord, I know that I have failed you. Thank you for Jesus. So we build these rules. We attempt to perform them. And when we fail, we judge ourselves. We build these rules for everybody else. When they fail, we judge them. Believing all the while that somehow, someway, I'm either going to lose my salvation or God's gonna punish me if I don't live up to this standard. But let me ask you a question because I think this is important. This was important for me this week. When I'm building these roles and when I'm doing these things, who's, who's God in that scenario? We are. When I build these roles and these regulations and for myself and for others, here's what I'm doing. I'm playing God. When we set the rules for our lives and for everyone else, and when we don't achieve those rules and we, we fail and others fail us, we become the judge and executioner. Who's God in that scenario? It's us. We've decided that holiness is what we think it is, not what God thinks it is. Sadly, while all of this focus on keeping these external rules and 
obligations and all of these things, while we're so busy and focused on doing that, our hearts are far from God. And so sure, maybe I don't drink. Maybe I don't do drugs. Maybe I don't dance or date girls who do. (laughs) Yet all the while, I come home and I lash out at my wife. I go to work and if somebody fails to meet my expectations, oh man, I tear them up. You ever been there? I rip them up. And so I don't do all of these things, but yet there's no love, no peace, no patience, no kindness, no gentleness, no self-control, no faithfulness. And we play that off as it's holiness when what Paul says is it's worldliness dressed up like holiness. I think about how many people have walked away from the church because we have said, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, and yet all the while we're living up to those standards and yet our hearts are far from God and our lives are absent of peace, of patience, of kindness, of gentleness, of self-control. Listen, even the most secular person can, can live by those standards of don't drink, don't have sex, don't do all these things. Anybody can do that. It's just self-discipline. Not everybody can walk in the fruit of the Spirit. That's true holiness. So when the Bible calls us to holiness, the Bible is not calling us to just abstain from all of these things. It's to pursue Jesus via the Holy Spirit. And as I pursue my relationship with him, his Holy Spirit then transforms my heart from the inside out, not the outside in. It's from the inside out. And all of a sudden, I begin to have peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And then all of a sudden what Paul says when he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, all of a sudden that makes sense. It makes sense. It's not Paul saying, hey, don't be drunk for the sake of don't being drunk. He said, there's something far better, far greater for you, and that's being filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, you no longer need these things. That's the difference. And you know, here's the crazy thing. When a church and a group of people walk in that, we do become different. We become set apart. And all of a sudden, you know, when you go from ripping somebody at work because they didn't, they didn't meet your expectations to bringing them in your office and saying, hey, hey, I noticed that you're struggling. Hey, let's talk about what's going on in your life. Maybe being patient with them. Maybe being kind with them. Or, man, when your kids fail to meet your standards, you come home and you say, hey, can I remind you that dad messed up today too? As a matter of fact, God's got a perfect standard for me and I failed. I failed miserably and yet Jesus is my righteousness. He's my perfection. See, I think what happens is we build these rules and these regulations But the reality is, is a relationship is not built on rules and regulations. It's built on relationship. Right? I mean, how well has it gone for you when your relationships are built on how people live up to your standard? Probably not well. Probably not well. How's your walk with the Lord when it's all built on rules and regulations. You're depressed, burnout, 
exhausted, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, I failed you again. I failed you again. Pity me, pity me, pity me, pity me, pity me. And he says, for you to pity you is for you to nullify the cross of Jesus. Because you're pretending to be the substitute that you could never be, that only he can be. Are you following me on this? I'm serious. Are you following me? I need to know that you're following me because I don't want us to be a church that's built on self-righteousness and legalistic tendencies. I want us to be a church that's built on grace, that's addicted to grace, so that we don't have to worry about being addicted to these other things. Because when we're addicted to grace and we're addicted to Christ and, and we're, we're, we're pursuing him above anything else, we don't have to have rules and regulations because he is so much better, so much greater than anything that I can or can't do. And it's that relationship that drives us to that. I mean, think about marriage. Can you imagine if your marriage is solely about rules and regulations? You know, on, in 2012, Jordan and I made the best decision, aside from accepting Christ, the best decision I've ever made in my life. We stood in front of God, friends and family, committed ourselves to live for God alongside of one another for the rest of our lives. We did that. And so as a part of that, we built some rules and regulations to protect that, right? I know Satan's after marriage, right? You don't have to, you have to have, to have your head in the sand to not see that. So we, we built some rules and some regulations on how do we maintain, how do we, how do we grow this relationship so that we grow together and not grow apart? But listen, I'm not unfaithful to her because we built rules and regulations. I'm not unfaithful to Jordan because I'm crazy about her. When you're crazy about the God who has given his son for your life, it changes the relationship because it's no longer built on rules and regulations, but it's built on an intimate relationship that you have with the God of the universe. And so when you're walking with him, talking with him, inviting him into every detail of your life, not just Sunday morning, but every detail of your life, you're walking with him, pursuing him, it's that that's the application here. Our self-righteousness and our judgmentalism and our legalism ought to be the first sign that I am no longer walking with Christ. I'm walking with rules and regulations that I have built on top of him. And so the application that I have for you this morning is to understand that a captive life is nothing new. It's nothing new. There's no new rule that you can build and believe me, as culture continues to be crazier and crazier, we're going to have to build more and more and more kind of rules to safeguard our Christianity. But understand that our relationship with God is not based on those rules. It's based on our relationship. It's based on that relationship. And so as we consider a captive life, a captive life is nothing new. It's not going to be about a new rule or a new practice or a new thing. It's going to be about a pursuit of him. You have to, have to, have to pursue him. And as you do, as I said a minute ago, he transforms you from the inside out, not the outside in, but the inside out. And then all of a sudden, you and I look different, radically different than the rest of the world. And then the rest of the world goes, man, I want that kind of peace. I want that kind of joy. I want that kind of patience. I want that kind of self-control. I want those kind of things. I want that fruit of the spirit. I want that. 
Man, that, they're satisfied. Wow, I want that. That's what we got to be about. And I can tell you, man, our witness will change not only Belton, Temple, but Bell County to the ends of the earth. And that's what I'm after. I hope you're after that too. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the goodness and grace that we have in him. God, I'm thankful that I don't have to perform or to pretend for you, but God, you see me as I am in the imperfect state that I'm in, Father, and I'm thankful that you didn't turn away, but you turned your head toward me. You gave your son for me to live a perfect life, to die my death, to be buried and to raise again so that I never have to return back to the grave in which you found me. Lord, thank you. Lord, I pray that we would walk in that truth. Lord, that it wouldn't be just a theory, but it would be a truth that we're trusting in each and every single day. Lord, help us to do that. Because as we do, our self-righteousness and our judgment will find itself in its rightful place, in the grave where Jesus was buried, so that we can love people as ourselves and we can push them to Christ as we chase after him ourselves. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray.